That's a beautiful hymn we just sang, a prayer, um, that we would know the risen Christ, and we want to know him by faith, and we want to know the implications of his resurrection. We've heard the account in the Gospels of the resurrection of Christ read at the beginning of the service, and as I thought this morning of what would be most helpful on this Easter Sunday morning to bring to you a a message on this special day. My mind, my heart was drawn to Romans 8. And we're going to consider in my message really just a few verses from this chapter, but I I want to read the chapter. Yes, the whole chapter. Um, And it's, it's a full chapter. But I'm thinking of you in these dark days and you believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, you need to hear these words. And I remind you that though our practice week by week is Sunday by Sunday and it's not unique with us, this is our, you know, Christians frequently will give attention for the preaching to a few verses here or a paragraph there. But I remind you that when Paul first wrote this letter to the Romans, that the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author, he had no intention that as the people were sitting there hearing the whole letter read, that they remember all the unique details in the one sitting, right? In this one chapter alone, there's enough details and nuances that when I preached through the book of Romans several years ago now, we took months just to get through chapter 8. But the Spirit intended for a certain impression to be made upon Christ's people. So I'm going to read chapter 8, and I want to just encourage you to hear the reading with an ear to a few themes. Number one, your spiritual union by faith with Christ. Anytime you hear in Christ, with Christ, speaking of your union with Christ. Number two, I want you to think of, listen carefully for all the references to the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. That's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And then listen for allusions to the resurrection. Beginning in verse 1, Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 
If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he is, what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these, these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, what wonderful words. And there is much here, but I pray this morning in these next moments you would help me, you would help us to meditate on the central truths contained in this chapter and that you would lift the hearts of your people. For the joy of your Son, we pray. Amen. It is hard for us to imagine a world without aspirin or Tylenol, ibuprofen, anesthetics of any kind, cortisone shots, or any kind of effective painkiller. Hard for us to imagine that kind of world. But that is the world that the Apostle Paul is writing in. And I suspect that given that's the case, that he's writing in a time when there are none of these modern reliefs to physical pain, that he and others, those who are receiving this letter, are just accustomed to hearing a lot of different groans in life. And maybe there aren't as many jokes about groaning as we tend to make because all around was the evidence of the pain and discomfort of people unrelieved. And we know, of course, that there's a different kind of groaning that can arise not only due to physical pain, physical discomfort, but from profound pain and Discomfort of soul and heart and mind. And try as they may, the pharmaceutical companies still haven't found a remedy for that. Whether audible or silent, the groanings of the human heart articulate this simple reality, this, this deep Sense and this truth. This is not the way things are supposed to be. And they're not. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, we know that God is working all things out. But the Bible does not tell us to look at this world and pretend all is well. Rather, the Bible looks at, addresses this world as it is, a world in rebellion against God and therefore experiencing the futility that comes from living under the curse and judgment of God. The wages of sin is death, and that death is not merely just a moment when heart stops beating and lungs stop breathing. 
But that death is an experience that in a way begins for every man and woman, boy and girl, born in this world from the moment we are born. Yes, we do continue to recognize good things in this world. All is not bad. Every day, this morning, right now, we experience evidences of true goodness, of kindness, grace. So thankful it's sunny today. Wish it was a little warmer, but it's sunny. I'm very thankful the black flies aren't out yet. Maybe it's good it's cold. Every day we experience evidences of God's kindness and goodness. So no, it's, it's not a half glass half empty view of life. It's just dealing with life as it is. Inwardly and sometimes audibly, we groan. And we groan because we are suffering. It's not an overstatement. It's true. Even if it's true of us to varying degrees, varying intensities, we are suffering. Paul refers to them as the sufferings of this present time. He says that, verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time. The sufferings of this present time aren't experienced by just one person here or there. They're experienced by all of us. Even boys and girls who we as who are adults love to see and to be around because they tend to be a lot happier and full of joy and laughter. But even boys and girls cry. And they have times when their hearts are very, very sad. It's true of all of us. We are suffering. And the sufferings of this age can feel like I imagine it might be if you had a large piece of New Hampshire granite that had come down upon you and you're under it and you feel its weight. You can't move out from under it. It's maybe not enough to literally crush you, squash you, but it's so heavy you can't get out from under it. It's so heavy and it's just unrelenting. It it doesn't change its weight. It doesn't change its position. It's just there as a constant reality, the force of it bearing down upon you. The sufferings of this present age are heavy, heavy and impressive. And so, the Apostle of Christ's words in verse 18 are shocking. They should be, I mean, shocking. Almost offensive, possibly. Seemingly insensitive seriously out of touch with reality. I consider, verse 18, Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Now, whatever follows after that, that's an incredible statement. If you think of the sufferings that you yourself have experienced, those in your immediate family have experienced, if you think of the sufferings that are going on in Ukraine right now, in other parts of the world, 
On the face of it, Paul seems insane. Out of it. But then we consider who this man is. And it's perhaps fair to say he's actually probably suffered more than any person in this room. I've never been beaten to a pulp. I mean, with rods, whipped, imprisoned numerous times, Paul was shipwrecked. The man to look at him would be to look at a, a man disfigured by the sufferings he'd experienced. He knew cold, he tells us. He knew hardship. He knew hunger. And, of course, he knew the deep pain of rejection, hated by those who used to praise him. Paul knows sufferings. So how can this be? How are we to understand his statement in verse 18 that he considers the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be considered with the glory that is to be revealed to us what are we to make of this how can this be for the sufferings of this present time are very heavy and if I'm not mistaken though there is nothing new under the sun as I listen to you as I consider my own thoughts I think it is fair and reasonable to say that these days we are living in right now are particularly heavy. The darkness has increased. We're not surprised by that. We're told that that would happen in the scriptures, but we're experiencing it. So how can it be? How can it possibly be that in some way, shape, or form that our present sufferings, which are what they are, are in some context, in some comparison, not worthy to be compared. In other words, they don't even bear weight enough to be on the same scales. How can that be? Glad you asked. There are three realities that undergird Paul's statement here in Romans 8. And I want to look at them with you this morning. Three realities. One is future. One is a a certain reality, a truth that is in the future that Paul is very clear on. Another reality, a second reality is in the past. A reality, a something that happened, a truth that Paul reflects back on. And a present reality for believers that he asserts is always true. He's referring to these three realities, the the coming redemption of our bodies and of all creation. That's that future reality. This glory which will be revealed to us is the redemption of our bodies. The resurrection, the glory that is to come. The past reality is this, the resurrection and redemption of Christ's body. Thirdly, this morning, I want to consider with you this present reality, the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We could add 
to that list, but that's enough for this morning. Three realities that help us understand how it can possibly be that in some context our sufferings are not even worthy to be compared. Number one, first of all, the redemption of our bodies and of all creation. Look with me at verse 23. Paul says, after saying all creation groans, he says, not only this, we ourselves, speaking of believers, have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within us, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. It's, it's not that just if our body was fixed, everything would be okay, <laughs> but that this resurrection this, this moment in history, in the future, when, when God glorifies and raises his people from the dead, this is, this is a moment, an occasion, which with it brings in all of the promises that God has made concerning the future glorious kingdom. He says here, he speaks of it in verse 23, as our adoption as sons, waiting for our adoption. In our men's study on Tuesday nights, We've been studying um, various doctrines. One of them recently was this biblical truth of that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and when we are born of the Spirit of God and given new hearts, that God brings us into his family as his children, as sons and daughters, and we are adopted. And, and we are adopted legally by God at the moment that we are united with his Son by faith. The text here also says that that speaks to God preparing for his son many brethren that Jesus would be the firstborn, meaning, meaning that he is preeminent among many brethren. And so we have been adopted. We who have trusted in Christ, we have been adopted. But there's a sense in which the completion of the adoption process will take place and only take place at the resurrection when the bodies of believers will be raised new and whole without any sin or decay. In these bodies at this present time, not only do we have aches and pains and, and need sometimes cortisone shots or, or more, but in these bodies in this present time, as believers in Christ, as God's children, we do not feel at home. We don't belong. And we don't. We are seriously out of step with this world because this world is seriously out of step with our Father and with our brother, our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't belong here. We struggle with sin without and within, and our bodies just constantly remind us that we're not home yet. But a time is coming when we'll be home. Sometimes we speak of definite atonement. Paul here is speaking of a definite appointment. It's on the calendar. God knows it alone. But there is a time coming when God is going to send his son. And with the shout of an archangel... He is going to 
Christ is going to command the bodies of believers who have died to be raised. Those of us who are alive at the coming of Christ will be translated, transformed instantly, given new bodies like unto the Lord Jesus. Don't get weird about that. You know, we're not talking about alien bodies. You know, we're talking about bodies. And if you think that's incredible, how do you think you got what you have right now? You're sitting there. Your eyeballs are looking at me. Your ears are listening to me. So isn't it so interesting? We think that is so incredible. But we're only just used to the fact that we have these bodies. How did you get that? How'd you get in the first place? Someone go to Walmart? No. God made it. God made you. He gave you your life. He gave you your breath. He gave you your heart. He gave you everything you have. So don't marvel at this idea that he can raise you and resurrect you. I mean, come on. It's no problem. You're sitting right here, even with your broken bodies. So when he wants to, because of Christ, if you're united with Christ by faith, God promises he's going to raise your body from the dead and it'll be made new, like unto the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not all. I mean, that's good. I'll take it. I'm ready. Um, this body's been going downhill for quite a while now. I am, I am ready for a body with strength and without pain and a mind that is more accurate. But that's not all. With the resurrection, at the resurrection of the saints, there will be in that time a remaking of all things. In other words, at the resurrection, that is the trigger moment, the point at which the, the plan of God foretold for the coming of Christ, the kingdom of God on earth, and ultimately the new heavens and new earth. That is what triggers it all. It's pretty awesome to consider that at the first creation, God made the heavens and the earth. He made the stars, the darkness, the water, the land. And then he made man. In the new creation, he makes us new first. We're first. We're raised. We're made new. And then creation follows. I want to draw your attention to one passage in particular. If you want to turn there, you can. If you just want to listen, that's fine. Isaiah chapter 65. There's so many places we could go, but here is one of the most beautiful expressions of the glory to be revealed to us. Remember Paul said, the glory to be revealed to us. All creation is waiting for this time in a sense. It's not that the beasts of the field are thinking about these things. Of course, they, they aren't. But there's a sense in all of creation that things are not the way they are, things are not the way they are supposed to be. But God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth, a new earth where, where we live with God. God says in verse 17 of Isaiah 65, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Not groaning, gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, says God. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping or the sound of crying. 
No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, or one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will wear out their work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and the descendants with them. And it will also come to pass but before they call, that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now there's two ways you can hear that. Poetic, merely poetic, fanciful, wishful thinking. Or you can consider that God, who made all things, gave those words, and it's going to happen. He's going to give us new bodies, like the body of the Lord Jesus, free of a sin nature, free of the curse of death. He's going to create for us a new earth. Yes, there'll be dirt. Yes, there'll be trees. Yes, there'll be houses. We're not going to be floating around like ghosts. It'll be really good. I mean, really good. Better than anything you have ever experienced or you ever could experience here on this earth. God will make all things new. That's the first reality as to why Paul can say, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be considered with the glory to be revealed to us. We are going to be so overwhelmed with the glory and the goodness that will be revealed to us at the resurrection that even our present heavy sufferings will be forgotten. Because in comparison, in comparison to the glories to come, they will be light. Amazing. That's the future. That future, how can we be certain that it's going to come to pass? What guarantee do we have? What, I mean, what prospect? What, what assurance? And glad you asked. The assurance of the future glory of the redemption of our bodies coming to pass and the making new of all things is based upon and secured by the resurrection and redemption of Christ's body. His body has already been redeemed from the dead. He has been raised, verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The future resurrection and redemption of our bodies is founded upon this axiomatic truth. That if Christ has been raised, those who are united with him by faith will be raised. By grace, through faith, we are brought into spiritual union with Jesus Christ. 
It's remarkable to think that Jesus, risen from the dead, was raised by the Spirit, is indwelt by the Spirit of God, and in the Spirit is his own Spirit, and that as a guarantee to we who trust in Christ, that we are adopted, that we too will be brought along to the redemption of our bodies. As a guarantee, God in Christ gives the Spirit to indwell every believer. The same Spirit that indwells the breathing, resurrected Christ right now at the right hand of the Father indwells you, believer. The same Spirit. And by faith in Jesus Christ, you are brought into union with Christ. And so consider this. It is no way that Jesus can be redeemed, his body resurrected from the dead, and his people, his body, not be redeemed. Impossible. God doesn't do things halfway. And so it's just a matter of time. That's all that stands between us and the redemption of our bodies. Nothing else, just time. In the future, we have a definite appointment with glory, the glory of the kingdom to come. And in the past, we can witness the resurrection of Christ as a redemption of God's power and his plan to fulfill all he has promised. This is the significance of the resurrection. It's not merely that it demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God. It does do that. It, it does vindicate Christ. It demonstrates that he was sinless. But the entirety of our hope and our future rests on the fact of the resurrection of Christ. Because he is raised, we will be raised. Because his body is redeemed, our bodies will be redeemed. God has not given his son to live for us, to suffer for us, to die for us, to be buried for us, to be raised for us, to ascend into heaven for us, to intercede for us, to rule for us, only to stop there. Now he's going to go all the way. So we look to the past and we can see on that day some 2,000 years ago when Christ, the Son of God, rose from the dead. That is the absolute guarantee of the resurrection of our bodies and the glories to come. This is how Paul can say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to reveal to us. He's not denying the reality of sufferings, but he lives as a man in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've looked at the future. We've considered briefly the past and the significance of the resurrection of Christ. But we wonder right now, if we're honest, how will we make it? How will we make it? Right? And the answer is the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. I want to draw your attention back to verse 11 again. It's an if-then statement. 
If the spirit of him, that is the spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The defining difference between someone who belongs to Christ and someone who does not belong to Christ is whether or not that person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's the fundamental difference. So it says. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive. If the Spirit does not dwell in you, you do not belong to Christ. It's a Pause a moment to reflect for those who may be here. You've not trusted in Christ. You, you don't belong to Christ. That's not for me to say. That's for God to say, and he says it. The only way to the life eternal, the only way to this glorious future, this resurrection of joy and happiness in life, is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But for those who humble themselves and acknowledge their own sin against God, who trust in God's promise of life everlasting and trust in God's provision for sinners, his son crucified in our place, to those who are convicted and born again of his spirit, God gives his own spirit to dwell within them. The spirit who raised Christ from the dead indwells the resurrected Christ right now. And we who are in Christ enjoy the same spirit. We are obviously not yet glorified. Our bodies have not been raised and glorified. Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian scientists, which are pretty big here in Concord and go on Main Street, they can tell us all they want. Your sufferings are just imaginary. You're not really sick. It's just, just all in your head. Just think. Uh, no. We're not home yet. And it's not just in our head. We obviously are still suffering. And God knows our sufferings. They are real. Verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. Paul references that even creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation groans in a sense. Verse 22, suffering the child, pains of childbirth. In other words, God has established as an absolute fact that he is going to make all things new. But such is the sufferings and the twisted nature of these days and of these times that all of creation has a sense this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
longing, groaning anxiously for the revealing of God's glory, the resurrection to the sons and daughters of God. So creation's growing. We are still groaning. Verse 23, having the first fruits of the Spirit. Yes, we who are believers, we have been given the Spirit, but still yet we groan within ourselves. And there's nothing here that suggests that this is bad. There's nothing here that's saying, stop groaning. You know, you know it's, it, no. This is being held up as the common experience of a mature believer in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Spirit, having the first fruits, we even ourselves, verse 23, groan within ourselves, we eat, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So creation groans, we are groaning. Our hope is a groaning hope. Hence the title of this message. Oh, we have a hope. And it's not pie in the sky. It is a hope that is informed by the written revelation of God and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a strong and certain hope, but our hope for now is a groaning hope. Creation groans. We groan. And there's another who groans. I don't know if I'd ever noticed this before. We tend to divorce or separate Romans 8, verse 26, from everything that's before it. And so there's all kinds of debate about what's meant by the Spirit interceding for us with groans too deep for words. I, I want to propose to you, whenever there's a question, you ought to just look to the immediate context. Creation groans. We groan. And then marvel of marvels, in the mercy of God, we are told that the very Spirit of God in Christ who dwells within us so identifies with us, the people of Christ. He too groans. This is, this is, this is mind-boggling because... The Spirit of God is with God, the eternal blessed God. God is not subject to passions like we are. He, he doesn't have a good day, a bad day. God is complete. He doesn't ever have, he doesn't know any kind of lack or want. He is who he is. And yet, in his mercy and in his grace, and, and because of the incarnate, the Son of God becoming incarnate and, and, Upon the resurrection, becoming the spirit, resurrected man, indwelt by the spirit, the father and the spirit, knowing the son and his union with his people, because the people of Christ groan, because of that, the spirit of Christ enters into and ministers on our behalf an expression, an intercession that can only need to be said to be somewhat similar to our groaning and the groaning of creation, expressing the longing of Christ and his people with an expression that is too deep for words. Groaning. 
incredible. So dear beloved sons and daughters of God, those of you who have trusted in Christ, you keep looking forward by faith to that definite appointment. The revealing of glory to the sons of God, the redemption of your bodies, the remaking of creation. You keep looking forward with a groaning hope to that definite appointment. Because you have a risen Savior an indwelling spirit and a heavenly father who will surely bring it to pass. Ours is a groaning hope, but someday soon, someday soon, our suffering and groans and even our hope will be no more. For we will have been done with the days of hoping and longing and waiting and groaning. And we will enter into the days of the joy that was prepared for Christ's people and the Father's children from before the foundation of the world. We will have entered into the glory of our adoption as sons and daughters to the praise of Christ by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the praise of our Father and at the bottom of all this what secures the definite reality that this will come what we are celebrating today the resurrection of Jesus Christ let's pray Oh, God, we need you so much. We are weary with our groanings. Even if we are thankful for all your goodness, and we are, and we recognize that you have surrounded us, and that in the long run, it's true, as the psalmist said this morning in Psalm 16, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And yet our hearts groan. We suffer. We pray this morning that you will help your suffering people, Lord Jesus, all the way through. And we bless you and thank you, Father and Son, for your gift of your own spirit to be our guide, to be our comforter, to be, and I mean this reverently, our holy fellow groaner, expressing for us the inexpressible so that we might be comforted and assured that though while we are now suffering, there is a time coming soon when we will remember those sufferings no more. 
Oh, we bless you, we thank you, and we rejoice that this is not a fairy tale, this is not wishful thinking, because Jesus is alive. We rejoice in him. Amen.